0: Haggai 2, 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold of bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. No. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you.
1: Good morning. It's a fun text, right? Um, We're in the middle of uh, our series through the the great book of Haggai. Uh, Haggai is towards the end of the Old uh, Testament. Uh, It's one of the smallest books in the Bible. Uh, In my Bible, it's like Haggai chapter 1 on on the left and Haggai chapter 2 on the right. And and that's it. Um, And so we've been working our way, though, uh, through uh, this book. This is week number 4 of of 5. And we're calling this series Kingdom Come. And the idea is uh, that if you want, uh, the the one thing that we kind of all yearn for, the one thing that we all sort of like long to be uh, a part of that just gnaws at the human soul is the kingdom of God. We're wired for it. That true purpose, true mission, true human flourishing is found in the kingdom of God. And so uh, God's people in, in this particular uh, book, uh, they have kind of strayed from uh, kingdom priorities. They have strayed from the kingdom of God, and, and God through the prophet Haggai is, is trying to, to bring them back, trying to, to woo them back and, and just help them recapture a vision for who he is, for who God is, and what it means to participate in His kingdom, and so that's what we're working through. Uh, and this morning we're going to pick up in Haggai chapter two, verse ten. So, uh, if you would mind, let's pray together. Let me pray for our time, and then we'll get started in our text. Lord God, we thank you for just an opportunity to to be together uh, and to work through uh, this text your word is a gift to us you are God who is great awesome and holy and and you don't owe us uh, anything you don't owe us any line of communication but in your grace and in your goodness you've given us your word so we can know something about who you are So we can know things about what you've done uh, for us in Christ. And uh, I just pray, Lord, that as we work through this text, that the words of my mouth and the meditation on all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our Lord, rock, and redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So. Uh, so every time I uh, every time I pick up my kids from the gym we have this like they have the same routine uh, they ask me to sort of hoist them up uh, lift them up a little bit so that they can pump pump their their hands under the hand sanitizer right the hand sanitizer dispenser on the wall uh, and it's one of those hand sanitizer dispensers that's got the bubbles you know it's not like the clear liquid it's the fun one where you got bubbles that go on their hand and and, and they love to do this they love to do the hand 10 times before they 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 leave the gym uh, and they like that because to them it's fun like disappearing bubbles right but we like Alyssa and I like we like that our kids do that for a different reason disappearing germs right that's our goal and so because because kids are gross right kids are gross like I know where my kids like to stick their fingers I don't even want to know where all these other kids are sticking their fingers. And my kids are like with all these other kids for an hour, like while we're, we're at the gym. And, and, and I, I don't know like what kind of germs they've picked up that my kids have picked up on their hands. And so we do the whole hand sand, or sand sanitizer, <laughs> hand sanitizer uh, thing. And, and I, look, I'm not, it's not because like I'm some obsessive clean freak. Like I don't mind putting my kids in this, this den of germs. So long as they remember to wash their hands before we leave. And do you guys remember when like hand sanitizers, uh, these dispensers became like really ubiquitous where they were everywhere, Uh, even bigger, uh, they became sort of an even bigger thing than they've always been uh, about like 10 years ago. Do you guys remember like when that happened? It happened because of the swine flu outbreak. If you remember, 2009, the swine flu outbreak uh, good, good mor- I think it was Good Morning America did uh, this experiment to observe how well kids wash their hands. And so they sent this news crew to this classroom in Washington, D.C., and at the start of the day, they coated all the kids' hands with this invisible lotion, uh, this clear invisible lotion that you could only see under like a special black light. And the lotion had sort of the same level of stickiness as the most common germs. And so they'd have the kids go throughout their day and they say, hey, just look, wash your hands like you normally do. If you're a hand sanitizer kid, like use how much you normally would. And at the end of the day, uh, this, this crew would uh, sort of uh, examine all the kids' hands under this black light to see how well that they washed. And like you probably guessed... The results were nasty. They were nasty. Like not only did all the kids still have uh, under the black light, they could see like the clear lotion on their hands, but it spread onto their faces. You can see under the light, onto their desk, on the doorknobs. The teacher was a mess too. And the point is, it's hard to wash germs away when you don't know that they're there, Right? It's hard to wash germs away when you can't see them, when you can't discern their presence. And in the same way, the people of God in Haggai chapter 2, they don't see the stain on their own hearts. They can't discern the presence of sin in their own hearts and so God in his kindness sends Haggai to them once again he sends Haggai the prophet to open up their eyes with a word from the Lord to the gravity of their grimy sin so they can see the hope that only God can bring them in their grimy situation Maybe you're here this morning and you're kind of thinking, you know, your life looks pretty good. You're thinking, my heart looks pretty, pretty good. My life looks pretty good on the outside. But sin lives in a place that's hard to see, sin lives in a place that's secret, that's hidden in our hearts. And you see, Jesus is after all of us. He's not just out, out, out for, to, to change the outside veneer. He wants to change all of us. He wants to make us whole in the fullest sense of that word. We're not just pretty on the outside, but that we're clean on the inside too. So we're going to see that this is important to the heart of God. The point again of this series is to seek after God's kingdom over anything else. It's about echoing this prayer of Jesus, Lord, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The book of Haggai is all about putting God first, having his priorities become our priorities. And As we've seen over the last few weeks, this has been a journey for these people. They were in exile, they were under captivity because of Babylon for about 70 years. God had just brought them back. They start rebuilding the temple, start rebuilding their faith. uh, But then they start investing into their own castles, into their own homes and kingdoms. And then Haggai comes to woo them back to God's priorities and they start rebuilding again, but then they get discouraged and so Haggai comes with a word of encouragement. And now they're, they're back to building the temple. They're back on God's priorities. But now in Haggai chapter 2, verse 10, is what we see is that even though they're back to work, even though they're pumped and excited about the things of God once again, the things have started to go well again. They're working for the Lord. But now at this point in Haggai chapter 2, verse 10, something happens to them. That it can happen to us if we're not careful. Self-righteousness starts to sort of creep into their hearts. And so Haggai has a word to sort of expose this to them. And that's the first thing that I want us to see this morning. Point number one is that your sin is worse than you think. Your sin is worse than you think. Your sin is more pervasive than you think. Start reading in verse 10 with me of Haggai chapter 2. It says, on the, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came once again by Haggai the prophet. And this word from the Lord begins in verse 11 and says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. Now, now, now God is going to ask them through Haggai, these priests, he's going to ask the priests some questions about the law. Now, why would God ask his priests about his own law? Why would he ask them a question about his own law? He obviously knows the answers to the questions he's about to ask. So why would he ask these questions? It's because through these questions, the Lord wants this nation, this, this remnant, and all of its leaders to sort of feel the impact of their sin. He asks them uh, questions as sort of this this uh, rhetorical device to to expose to them uh, the sin that was previous that is uh, hidden from them at this point. So we read about the the, the first question in verse twelve. Got it says ask the priest this question. He says in verse twelve, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold like bread or stew or wine or oil or any other kind of food, like does does it does that food then become holy? And the priests they answered and they said, No, that's not how it works. Now what in the world is he talking about? What is behind this like Without any context, you might assume that carrying holy meat in the fold of your garment is a reference to carrying Chick-fil-A in your front pocket, right? But here's the background behind this question. We read about it, we read about sort of the background context to this question in the books of Leviticus and in Numbers, uh, in the old Mosaic law, if you've ever done sort of a Bible reading plan, you know that those two books are, are, are the books that sort of tempt people to give up on their reading plans, right? Because they sort of feel like a slog there's all these rule, like lists chapters and chapters of rules and regulations about building the temple and building the city and you got to use this material and that material and when you eat you got to eat this food and not that food and use these kinds of utensils and and here's all the right way to do the sacrifices you got to do all of these things in order to do a sacrifice rightly don't do this if you do this then you have to start over and there's all these chapters and verses and and this long list of rules and regulations, what is that all about? Is God uptight? Is He too tedious? Why does He seem to care about all these like minute details in Leviticus and Numbers? Now, without context, we can get sort of confused when we read these old laws because we, we sort of miss the forest for the trees. But when we take a step back, we see that, that these, these rules, these laws, these regulations, when you, when you lump them together and take a step back, you see that this, they, they teach us something about God. They teach us something about God and something about ourselves. For example, the old temple... Had this meticulous sacrifice system, They, they had this beautiful temple, uh, and then they would we'll go through this 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 process for how you were to rightly make a sacrifice in the temple, and then they'd slaughter these animals around the temple, which would just create this this bloody mess. And I want you to imagine what this scene like when they when they were sacrificing the animals. Imagine what this this mess would have looked like. Imagine what it must have smelled like on a hot day. Why is this so gruesome a picture with the sacrificial system, with all the blood running down into the dirt and into the river? Why such a gruesome picture? It's because God wants us to see that that's how repulsive our sin is. The sacrificing of the animals was a, a, a ritual God had given them uh, to make atonement for their sin, to show that, that any hope for salvation, any hope from sal- for, 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 for forgiveness uh, comes from, from God, and, and He's repulsed by their sin. This is how disgusting your sin is, God says, that that it requires this bloody mess of a sacrifice. That is how destructive your sin is. And he wants us to get that point. He wants them to get that point through these laws and rules and regulations, not to beat us up over it, but so that we can then turn to him and get cleansed of our unrighteousness from the only one who's capable of doing that. Leviicus numbers are almost a way of God turning on that black light so that we can see how far apart we are from him in our in our true state. We can see our true state. And so they had these regulations whenever Jewish peace would take that holy meat they he would wrap it in the special garment during a transfer from one place to another and that garment was considered holy. And so here in, in the, is the Lord in verse twelve, quizzing the priest. He's saying, "Hey, look! If someone carries this holy meat in the fold of his garment, and that garment touches anything else like bread or stew or wine or oil or any other kind of food, so does that does that new thing become holy too? Because it got touched. Like, is it like this sort of Midas touch sort of thing where now everything you touch turns to gold? Everything you touch turns holy?" And all the priests knew. Like the answer is no. That's not how it works. And then the Lord asked them another question in verse 13 now. He says, it says, Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact now with a dead body touches any of these, does does that thing become unclean? And the priest answered and said, Yes, it, it does become unclean. You see, because there was another regulation in the book of Numbers that said that if you touched a dead body, It would make you unclean and you would have to be quarantined for seven days, which might make some of us think like, like, well, well, that sounds kind of harsh. But you got to understand that back then, this was like a health measure that God baked into the ceremonial laws. This was a health measure because back then diseases spread so easily through dead bodies. And so there was this law, if somebody touched a dead body, you cons- that person is considered unclean if anything touches a, a dead body that thing is now considered unclean and so the idea then by God asking these two questions back to the back the idea is that holiness does not transfer from object to object but unholiness does Righteousness does not transfer from object to object, but unrighteousness does. These questions God is asking them is he's making a point of how pervasive sin can be, about how easily it can spread. It's kind of like how you and I, we can catch a cold, but you can't catch health, right? Right? That's why when I take my kids to the doctor's office, they've got one room for the healthy kids and another room for the sick kids. They don't say, hey, let's bring them together so the sick kids can catch some health from those other kids. That's not how it works. Holiness can't be transmitted from person to person, but unholiness can, and it often does. It's pervasive. And that principle is important to the Lord. That, that principle is timeless. That's not just an Old Testament principle. That's just a timeless principle. It's still true today. Even though the ceremonial laws are now rendered uh, fulfilled in Jesus, they're obsolete because they're fulfilled in Jesus, and they no longer apply to us. Even though they no longer apply to us, that principle that they taught is still the same. Your sin is worse than you think. Your sin is more pervasive than you think. Your sin reaches into places you don't even know. And look, 21st century people like us, we have a problem with this idea. We have a problem with this idea that we're like unfit for the presence of God. We believe in like human rights and human dignity uh, and, and that everybody's awesome. And, and, and those are wonderful things, right? It's like just a very real, real sense in which uh, just the, the belief in, in human dignity and human rights is absolutely true and beautiful and good. But it's also true that we are stained by sin. We are totally depraved. And we need the special light of God and His Word to show us, to reveal to us how sick we really are. To show us how broken we are so that Jesus can heal us. Jesus can do His thing on us. We need to wake up to the reality that we are broken. Deeply broken and unable to fix ourselves. Secondly, we see in this text that our good deeds are not enough. The good works that we do are not enough to cover how bad our sin is. You see, that's the error that these people were sort of slipping into. They were starting to get too proud in their efforts. They were starting to get too proud in their work. and There's nothing wrong with being stoked on the work that you're doing. right? There's nothing wrong with being stoked on the work that you're doing for the Lord. But there was a shift in their hearts to where they started to find their identity in their work. They started to feel too proud, too self-righteous. They started to find their righteousness... In their work, so verse fourteen says this then Haggai answered the priest when they when they say uh, yes, our holiness can't be transferred n- like uh, and, and and or uh, no holiness can't be transferred but but yes uh, uh unholiness uncleanliness can be transferred Haggai and under, under the inspiration of the spirit answers them replies to them and he says. In verse 14, so it is with this people. In other words, he's saying, so it is with you guys. And with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. God is speaking to them in the third person. He's saying, look, just in the same way, it's tr- this is true about you. This is true about you, my people, my nation. This is true about you. This is true about the work of your, your hands. That because you don't realize how pervasive your sin is, you don't realize how, how, how misaligned your hearts are, even the good work that you're doing for me is unclean. God's saying, this is like, that's like you. You don't realize how unclean you still are deep down inside. See, God wants them to see that not only were they unclean because of their, their past sin, but their, every work of their hands right now is, is also unclean. So there is some sense that everything that they'd done in rebuilding the temple so far was, was unclean. You see, it's not just the bad things that we do that can be marked as unclean. It's also the good things that we do with the wrong motives. It's not that they were doing it wrong. It's that deep down, they had wrong motives. Deep down, their hearts were still unclean. Even in all their new religious activity, they were still narcissistic. They were still self-absorbed. They were self-righteous. They gave the appearance of devotion on the outside, But they were secretly committed to their own selfish pursuits on the inside. And so God says, look, just because you got the ball moving again with this temple, just because you're moving forward on mission, doesn't mean that all of a sudden now your heart is right with me. Just because you're making outward progress and other people are noticing you and other people are looking up to you, just because you're making that outward progress doesn't mean I'm going to fill your storehouses again. doesn't mean that you're right with me, that I'm going to bless you. I want you to see that the Lord is being so patient in calling these people back to him. I mean, in chapter one, their priorities were all out of whack, and so he bids them to come back to the work, to write priorities. And then they get discouraged that this new temple is not looking like the old one. And so he tells them, no, your work matters. Your work matters, and I'm with you. I'm for you in this. And now they start slipping into this self-centered theology, this self-righteous posture saying, like, if I do this and if I do that, then God is going to love me and consider me holy. If we do this list of things for him, then he has to bless us. And God is kind enough to say, like, no, you're off kilter. Your heart is still unclean. I, I really want you to get that. I want all of you. I want to make you whole. Do we see this mentality that they have in Haggai chapter 2? Do we see this mentality in the Christian church today? Absolutely. Absolutely we do. We can see this in our tendency towards like self-righteous religion, where we say if I do the things on this good list and if my good list outweighs my bad list, then God's going to see that I'm worthy and he'll bless me. Or we say things like, hey, look, I'll, I'll live for the world when I'm with these friends, but as long as I live for Jesus when I'm around my church friends, then, then God will be pleased with me. Or we'll say things like, as long as as I'm more spiritual and go to church more and give more than my non-Christian neighbor, then God's got to let me in. Then I've got to be right with Him. You know what God's response is to, to those postures? God's response is, Unclean. That's unclean. He declares that unclean. The apostle Paul describes a similar situation in the New Testament to, to, to Timothy. He said, I want you to read this in Second Timothy chapter three, verses one through five. Paul says to His protege, Timothy, he says, Understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, Children will be disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. People will be heartless and unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And, and Paul says to Timothy, avoid such people. Now, when you look at this list, when you hear this list, it sounds like a depraved bunch, doesn't it? It sounds like a depraved bunch, right? But look at that last verse again in 2 Timothy 3.5. They're described, this depraved bunch is described as those having the appearance of godliness. So these are people in the church, that look like good church people on the outside, people who thought themselves to be part of God's family, but Paul says, no, they're unclean. Like, avoid such people. Avoid such people that live a double life and are unrepentant. A couple years ago, I went through this church planting residency, and, and one of our trips, the hosting church, uh, they he, they asked us to to stand up in front of their staff so that they could see like our our faces to stand up in front of them, and, and they wanted to pray for the churches that we would end up planting. Uh, and and the guy who called us up, he goes, "Let's have the the short guys. Let's have the short guys stand in front." And so he's like, "You know, Chris, Clint, Charles. Let's have the short guys stand in front of the tall ones." And I'm like, "Short guy." I'm 5'9". Like, I thought that was average height. But apparently, like, with this group of guys, like, where most of these guys were, like, six foot or more, like, I was uh, the short guy. I I got a quick picture so you guys can see it. So apparently... uh, I'm a short guy when I'm hanging with, with these guys. And i would never been called a short guy before. And like, so this happened like halfway through my residency. And for the whole like rest of my residency, I'm like super insecure when I'm, when I'm hugging them. I'm like, wow, like he, he I guess I am a, sh- a short guy, right? Uh, so we can move on from that. We don't need to see that anymore. <clears throat> you see, like some of us, we live our lives sort of comparing ourselves to the people around us, and we're like, you know what, I'm I'm, 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 I'm I'm pretty average. Like I'm pretty I'm i feel like I'm doing pretty good. Right? Some of us, we think our righteousness is bigger than it really is. Some of us have the appearance of being faithful and generous and godly, but behind the veneer, we're still self-centered. We're not living for God's pleasure, but we're living for our own. You can start start to feel pretty good about yourself when you start comparing yourself with with others around you, don't don't you? It's pretty easy to feel good about yourself when you start comparing yourself to others because you'll focus on the people that that you feel like you're doing better than. But the Bible says, don't compare yourself to others. Look at God's Word. Ask, Ask what does He call us to do? Jesus prayed, Lord, sanctify them to, with the truth. And then he says, your word is truth. Your word is truth. The way you purify the church is not by looking to others, not by comparing yourself to others, but, but looking to the truth of God's word. The Bible says, no, don't be conformed to the world's patterns but of comparing and, and contrasting, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That takes place through the washing of the Word, through the Gospel. Like, is your standard for righteousness, is your standard for, for how good you are, for your righteousness, or, 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 or are you feeling bigger than you are, more righteous than you are? Is your standard looking at others, or is your standard, like, well, like what is God's Word calling me to? By the way, there's another side to this. Like well, of the same coin, like while some of us might get too proud like those in, in Haggai because of how they compare themselves to others, some of us might get too discouraged. Some of us are prone to feel too guilty, too shameful. Some of us feel pressure like, like if I don't do enough or serve enough, then God's going to be disappointed in me. But that's not how God views it either. That's not how God views it either. So then how does he view it? What is he after? What, is, what, is it, what, what do we want to see when the black light of God's word turns on our hearts? What is it that we need to see in this text? Number three, that we need to be wholly transformed. That God wants to wholly in, in other ways in, in, in every way transform us. He's after all of us. God wants them to turn to him as the one who can change them, change all of them, the whole of them from the inside out and in order to get them there, He reminds them where they're coming from and he also reminds them where he's taking them You see, those who have the light of God's word, who have the eyes of their hearts enlightened uh, so that they can be more deeply aware of their sin, those who have the scriptures, they are the ones who will be deeply affected by his grace. Those that let the scriptures see how bad our sin really is, Will be the ones who are the most deeply affected by His grace. We see a glimpse of this in verses fifteen through nineteen of our text this morning. Haggai two, verse uh, chapter two, uh, verse fifteen. It says, "Now then, now then, consider from this day onward." Before stone was placed upon the stone in the temple of the Lord, uh, he's he's asking them to remember. He says, how did you fare? How were things going for you? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there was only 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not deter deter to me, declares the Lord. So, So God is reminding them here with these verses about how he disciplined them how he made their lives hard out of love for them so that they could turn back to him. And then in verse 18, he says, now consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. So God is saying, look, like, like, I want you to mark this day. Have things improved much for you so far? And he's saying, "Like, no, still they haven't. They haven't. But then he ends with this good word, this word of encouragement. He says, but from this day on, I will bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. God is saying, look, I want you. The reason that I've, we've had this back and forth like this is because I'm really after your whole heart. I really want you to see that I'm not just after your outward obedience. I'm after your whole heart. I really want your heart to be in this. And I'm going to do that in you. I'm going to do that in you. He says, Mark, from this day forward, from this day on, I will bless you. Things will turn around for you. In these verses, we see that in his mercy, God is calling them, bidding them, calling out to them to repent. In these verses, God is calling them in his mercy to repentance. He's inviting them to remember where they came from. He's inviting them to remember what God did to get them there. And now he's inviting them to celebrate what he will now do in them and through them. God's like, mark this day. Mark your calendars. Remember this day. From this day forward, things will begin to change. I've not only brought your bodies back to this land, I'm going to bring your hearts back to me. Maybe you need a word of encouragement like that this morning. Maybe you need that word of encouragement. where you're realizing like, no, my my heart hasn't really fully belonged to God. There's been areas that I've been keeping from Him. I've placed too much stock in my outward righteousness, in my uh, uh, reputation from my peers. Rather than really considering, does my heart belong to the Lord my God? Maybe you need this word of encouragement from the Lord, to where he says, look, I hear you. I've exposed this to you. I've used my word to expose how unclean that dark corner of your heart is, but now mark your calendars on this day. On this day, from this Sunday, from this Lord's day forward, Let's turn that around. I will bless you. I will change you. I will be at work in you and through you. Maybe you need that word of encouragement this morning. So how does God do that? How is it that God brings about this change in us? You see, some years later... After the events in this chapter, some years later, uh, we read in Zechariah chapter 3, there's a different prophet, and he has a vision. He has a vision of Joshua, the high priest, in this temple. Standing before the presence of the Lord on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, dressed in, in, in he and Joshua the high priest would have been dressed in all white as was the custom. And it's helpful to understand all that went into the customs of this day of Yom Kippur. The ceremonial laws taught that to prepare everything uh, uh, for the high priest to enter the holies of holies, that the high priest would have to spend an entire week, seven days secluded from everyone, preparing for the day that he would enter the temple. Why would he have to be so secluded? It's because they wanted to make sure God made provision in his ceremonial laws to make sure that the high priest would have no opportunity to accidentally touch or brush up against something unclean. No opportunity to accidentally breathe in or eat anything unclean. And so the high priest would be secluded from all the other people. Food would be brought to him. Uh, he, he would bathe thoroughly multiple times. He would prepare his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength. Uh, the, the, the day before Yom Kippur, the day before the Day of Atonement, when he would go into the temple, he wouldn't even sleep. He would just stay up all night reading the Bible, reading the scriptures to cleanse his soul. And then on that day, on Yom Kippur, he would bathe thoroughly again. And he would put on this clean, white, pure linen uh, as a symbol of just the purity that was required to be in the presence of the Lord. In the temple of the Lord, in the Holy of Holies, where the glory of God's presence would, would dwell and hover. And so he'd put on this white linen and and the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. And then first he would provide a sacrifice there for his own sins. And then he'd come out and then he'd bathe thoroughly again. And then he'd come back in and make another sacrifice for the sins of all the other priests, the priesthood. And then he'd step out and then he'd bathe thoroughly again again. And he'd go back in to make uh, a sacrifice for all the people. And all of the people uh, around the temple, they would stand outside the temple and they would watch him do all of this. They'd have this screen that that, that that would sort of blur him so that they wouldn't see him exposed, but they could see his body, the shape of his body, just doing all of this with the bathing and the going in and the going out. All the people would just gather in crowds around the temple. They'd watch him do all of this and they would cheer him on and they would encourage him on. And they would pray for him because he was their representative before God. And that, but in Zechariah 3, so that's the background behind the high priest in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. But in Zechariah 3, the prophet he saw something appalling in his vision. In his vision, he looks up and he sees Joshua, the high priest, on the day of atonement before the presence of God. And Zechariah, the prophet's his jaw drops because he sees the high priest in this vision on that day. After going through all of those customs, he sees the high priest standing before the holy presence of God as a representative of all God's people, and his clothes are covered in filth. Defiled, unclean, covered in urine and feces and in all kinds of nasty, grimy filth. And in Zechariah 3, you can almost hear in the verses how he's just like, how did this happen? Why does he look that? That's not supposed to be that way. Uh, all these ceremonial laws that the high priest would have to go through to stand before the presence of the Lord like that. Why in the world does he look like this? And the answer is that God was giving him a prophetic vision of how he, about how God sees us. In spite of all of our vain efforts to be pure, to be good, to be moral, to be upstanding, to be comparable to others, in spite of all our vain efforts to be seen as clean, God in this vision exposes to Zechariah, none of that works. None of that really works. And in that vision, the Lord speaks a word of encouragement that really exposes the whole point of the ceremonial system altogether. And the Lord says, take off those filthy garments and I will clothe you in righteousness. Instead of striking the priest dead, for bringing that filth into the temple, God says, no, I'm gonna take off your sin. I'm gonna take off your filth and I'll clothe you in holiness. And the Lord reveals that this vision that he's giving the prophet is pointing forward to this day when a greater high priest, a greater Joshua by the name of Yeshua, Will remove all the sins of all God's people in this very same way. Do you know this high priest? Do you know this high priest? Years later, Jesus was that man, Christ was that great high priest. But instead of a crowd cheering him on, every single person that he ever loved betrayed him, abandoned him, or denied any association with him. And he wasn't, this high priest, he wasn't bathed in soap and water, he was splattered with spit. Instead of being clothed in pure white garments, he was stripped and beaten to a bloody pulp with crimson cords instead of receiving encouragement from the father from the lord the father turns his face away second corinthians 5 says that god made Him made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the gospel. This is the gospel. Self-righteous religion holy effort that just tries to change us from the outside in but the gospel changes us from the inside out jesus gave himself to be broken so that we could be made whole so that we could be made new so that we could be made clean. We don't clean ourselves. We don't have to work our way in. Jesus took on our filth. He entered in, and he was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices so that we could be made clean in the truest sense of that. Word. One of my favorite memoirs is written by um, an old Scottish uh, preacher named Robert Murray McShane. And Robert Murray McShane, in, in his memoir, uh, there's an excerpt of this letter that he wrote one of his friends who was just uh, feeling discouraged, like he would just never measure up. And, and Robert Murray McShane wrote these words to this friend. He, he encourages his friend and says, do not take up your time so much with studying your own heart as with studying Christ's heart. It's not that you shouldn't look at your heart, it's that you shouldn't spend so much time studying your own heart that you neglect to study Christ's heart. McShane tells his friend, for one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is the glorious one who stood for many. His perfect garment is sufficient for you. You had no hand in his obedience. Yet in his perfect obedience, you may stand before God as righteous. This is your covering in the sight of a holy God. This is your covering in the sight of a perfect, pure, clean, and holy God. Jesus' righteousness, his cleanliness, is the only one that transfers. And it's because he gave his life to ensure it for you and for me. Maybe this morning you need to hear this invitation from the Lord. Maybe there are areas of your life that you've sort of made a mess of, and you're thinking, like, maybe if I do this churchy thing uh, and all these churchy things for, uh, for people to see and for God to see, then, then God will sort of fix my situation. And if that's you this morning, we can't give you what you came for. But we could do you better. I can point you to a Savior who has offered All of himself for all of you. Shed his blood for you so that you can be made whole from the inside out. Maybe this morning you're on sort of the other side of that coin to where you're feeling this constant pressure to do more and more, and you're always feeling guilty that you're not doing enough, that you're not good enough. If that's you this morning, then be reminded that not only have you been saved by grace, but you can stand in faith by grace. You can walk and run the race by grace. For every one look that you give to yourself, give ten more to Christ. The one who took care of your past, who is with you and for you in the present, who promises you a great future with him forever. Press into